Joshua chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And uh, because we are still in chapter 1, we're going to pick it up at verse 10. We, we only have gotten through the first nine verses, but for that reason, since we're still in chapter 1, I'm going to just quickly run through the three slides related to the introduction of this book, and then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll start to read, starting at verse 10 of chapter 1. It is the first book of the Bible named after a person, Joshua. Uh, the birth name of Joshua was Hashia, meaning salvation, but Moses changed his name to Yahashua, the Lord is salvation, in Numbers 13, verse 16, the same name that our Lord was uh, born with. That was his given birth name, Yahashua. Uh, he was called Moses' assistant, Joshua was, in Exodus 24, 13, and will later become his successor. By the way, that is a correction. I've been on the past couple of weeks saying uh, the reference was Numbers 24, 13, and Tyler pointed out to me, that's about Balaam. It's Exodus 24, 13. So, nothing like a smart aleck son for a, a pastor. But anyway, so wanted to make that correction to you, that he was uh, Moses' assistant, named there in Exodus 24, 13, later become his successor. The book covers about 25 to 30 years and concludes with the death of Joshua at 110 years of age. The book is broken into three sections with an epilogue. Uh, chapters 1 through 5, it's about entering the land, the land of Israel, the promised land. Chapters 6 through 12, it's about conquering the land because it's been occupied by people who were pagan worshipers. And then chapters 13 to 21, it's about dividing and settling the land. And then the epilogue, chapters 22 to 24, detail Joshua's farewell and his death. So let me pray, and then we'll start reading here in Joshua chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Let's pray first. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can share together in your word. Thank you for this pause in the middle of our week to just kind of recalibrate, to settle our hearts before you. It's good to be in your house tonight and to open up your word together. So speak to us. We thank you for how you reveal yourself through the pages of the Bible. And we pray that we would not just be hearers only, but also doers. And Lord, we thank you for the encouragement of these chapters as we come upon the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. And just see your wonderful redemptive plan in the life of one Rahab. And what a picture it is for all of us, Lord, of your wonderful redemption available to us. So thank you for this time and your word. We praise you together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Joshua chapter 1, verse 10, it says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you will cross over this Jordan to go into possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So um, Joshua has taken over the leadership role after Moses has died. That's the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, the people now are poised to actually enter into the promised land. For the last 400 years, they have been serving as slaves in Egypt. And by God's providential hand, God has delivered the Hebrew people out of slavery after 400 years. They have left Egypt because of their rebellion. For 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, which is basically the Egyptian Sinai Peninsula. 
and then eventually they make it right here to the border of the promised land at the Jordan River. Now, just to kind of get our bearings straight, and I'm kind of visual learner like this, so here's a map to orient ourselves. Uh, This is basically a satellite view of Israel. You have the Mediterranean Sea to the west that borders uh, the western uh, coast of Israel. You have up to the north the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And then you have down to the south here, the Dead Sea, and what joins the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is the Jordan River, running down through the Jordan River Valley. What you're looking at, by the way, is the lowest point on the face of the globe. The Dead Sea is the lowest point on on the face of the earth. And uh, the Sea of Galilee is the uh, lowest fresh body of water on the face of the earth. The Dead Sea, of course, by its name, uh, it is 34% salinity. It is the most concentrated salt body of water on the planet. Uh, The Great Salt Lake of Utah is only 17%. It's about half. Uh, our ocean, the Atlantic and the Pacific, is only about 3% uh, salinity. So this is 10 times that, the Dead Sea. And when God delivered the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt and they wander in the Sinai Peninsula, they're actually going to end up coming into the promised land, going from the east to the west. They're actually going to come up, if you see this arrow here, they come up uh, from under, below the Dead Sea, and and to the west, uh, rather to the east of the Dead Sea. So now they're on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which is today on a map, the country of Jordan. And they are situated here just north of the Dead Sea in what we're going to learn a little bit later into chapter 2 is a, uh, a town called Shittim, or in uh, the New King James I'm reading from, it says the Acacia Grove. The Acacia Grove, Acacia trees are flowering, thorny trees uh, that sometimes are even described as shrubs. They're not huge growing trees, but apparently there were plenty of these acacia trees that were growing in this vicinity, and so the whole, the town was named after them, because shatim in Hebrew means acacia tree. And so this is where they are, are located here. We're going to find out in a moment, and they're going to go, again, they're going to go from right to left. They're going to go from east to west into the promised land. So they didn't hug the coast of the Mediterranean. You know, if you, if you just simply walked from where they were in Egypt and hugged the coast of the Mediterranean on just, you know, a general pace, they could have made it to the promised land in 13 days. But it's taking them 40 years because uh, they were led by a man and he never stopped to ask for directions. Because <laughs> guys don't do that. We don't ask for directions. Uh, but anyway, so, but they end up wandering for 40 years because of their disobedience. They didn't believe God. And so they, you know, they, they took the hard route. And how many of you understand that's, that's kind of life. When we disobey God, we end up having the harder route. Uh, we bring it upon ourselves. We make a life more difficult for ourselves when we walk in disobedience. That's the way it works. Proverbs tells us that the way of the transgressor is hard. And so when we walk in the ways of the Lord, it goes better for us. Isn't to say that it's perfect because we still live in a fallen world. There's still plenty of hardships. There's still plenty of difficulties. There is tribulation, small t. Jesus told us, you will face tribulation in this world, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So there's enough tribulation, small t, that we encounter. Uh, We don't need to bring more into our lives by virtue of our disobedience. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they brought more hardship into their lives, more tribulation into their lives because they walked in disobedience to God. And so an entire generation will die in the wilderness. They will perish in the Sinai Peninsula. 
and only Joshua and Caleb from that generation and the children of the generation that sinned will end up going into the promised land. And Joshua, as their leader, is going to take them and cross the Jordan River. So that orients us now. And if you go back to your study here with me in verse 12, it says, And the Reubenites, the the Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, Joshua spoke, uh, saying, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them until the Lord has given your brethren rest as he gave you. And they also have taken possession of the land which the Lord your God is giving them." And then you shall return to the land of your possession and enjoy it, which Moses, the Lord's servant, gave you on this side of the Jordan toward the sunrise. Okay, toward the sunrise is the east. Sunrise in the east, that's in the west. So he's talking about exactly what we see on the map behind me. They are located there on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And he gives, Joshua gives this speech. Remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel. And he gives this speech to two and a half tribes, to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and to half of the tribe of Manasseh. Now, it was um, already told to us uh, in, in Deuteronomy that these two and a half tribes wanted to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. When the, lot, when the land allotment was given to the Jewish people, two and a half tribes asked Moses, hey, when we get to the promised land, we'd prefer to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And Moses obliged. And so he gives that instruction to Joshua. When you get there, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh want to stay on the eastern side of the Jordan River. The other nine and a half tribes uh, want to go over to uh, nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, I had to do quick math. Two and a half, nine and a half, that's 12. All right. Um, they, want to, they want to go to where the, the intended promised land is, which is on the western side of the Jordan River. But Moses said to Joshua, go ahead and, and uh, let these two and a half tribes stay on the eastern side, which again would be in modern Jordan. In biblical times, it was called Moab or Moab. And one of the things that Joshua says to them here is, you're free to stay on this eastern side of the Jordan River. However, you have to help your brethren, the other nine and a half tribes, get settled on the western side, which is the original intent of the promised land. And so you're, you're going to have to, all your armed men, your men of valor, which would be any guy 21 years and older, will have to take up arms You're going to have to go to the western side and help your brethren settle the land because there are a lot of pagan nations that have taken over the property in the last 400 years while the Jewish people have been slaves in Egypt. So going back means you got you got to kick out the people have overtaken your land because they're pagan worshipers and God has been patient with them for 400 years. And I'm going to tell you because some of you had the question like, well, how would they even know about the God of the Bible to be able to turn to God? I'll get to that when we get to chapter two. But God's patience has reached its limit after 400 years. These pagan people living in, on the western side of the Jordan River, their time is done. They've had time to get right with God. So Joshua says to these two and a half tribes, you got to go in with your brothers. You got to fight to take the land. Once the land has been settled, 
Then you can go back over to the other side to where we are here on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and there you can settle and there you can live. But you got to fight for your brothers first. Now, it tells us later on in chapter 4, verse 13, that there were 40,000 fighting men from these two and a half tribes. So 40,000 of these fighting men are going to have to do their work to help their brothers settle the land. Now, you know, I I don't want to over-spiritualize every nuance of the Bible. Sometimes that's dangerous. You look at every little thing and you try to make a spiritual point out of it. But I think there is something to be said there uh, in that, um, you know, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in this together. And, and when you see a brother or a sister in need, you, you go to their aid. You know, you help them. You fight for them. Uh, sometimes they, they will be in a place, and maybe you're here tonight, and you're kind of in this place. where You're, you're having a faith struggle. You're, you're feeling kind of weak. You're feeling down. You're feel, maybe you're, you're engaged in a lot of, you know, temptation, and, and uh, it's, it's difficult sometimes just kind of you know, occupying the land until Jesus comes, which is what the Bible tells us to do. Live out your lives here. Be like salt and light in the earth until Jesus comes. And sometimes that can be hard and you can grow weary. And so fight for your brothers and sisters. Come alongside of them. You know, minister to them, love on them, encourage them because we're all in this together. And so that's what Joshua basically is saying here. You're going to have to help your, your brothers uh, take the land and get settled, and then you can come back over here uh, to live. And so it, t- it tells us, keep reading with me there in, in verse uh, 18. And, and so they answered Joshua saying, all that you, com- uh, sorry, it's verse uh, 16. So they answered Joshua saying, all that you command us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. And just as we heeded Moses in all things, so we will heed you. Only the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your command and does not heed your words in all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and of good courage. And we mentioned how that phrase there, be strong and of good courage, is recorded four times there in chapter one. And here Joshua is, you know, he's already a fighting man. We see him in scripture as being a valiant warrior. And as I mentioned last week, sometimes even the most valiant among us every once in a while need to be encouraged, like stay strong, be of good courage, because there's this very fine line between faith and fear. And it's really easy to go from faith to fear. And so we have to just really press into the Lord and be men and women who are strong and of good courage and walk in faith and not in fear. So into chapter 2, it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove, that's what we're talking about here in the map, Shatim, to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So we're introduced to Jericho, and just again, a quick reference point on the map. So Jericho is directly opposite Shatim on the western side of the Jordan River. And so he's, they're eventually going to cross the Jordan River at this point and go into the promised land. And the distance between Shatim and Jericho is about 14 to 15 miles. Shatim is about 12 miles east of the Jordan River. Jericho is about another two miles, three miles west of it. And so that's the distance between these two points. And Joshua's going to send out two spies uh, into Jericho. So they're going to, they're you know, travel the 14, 15 miles from Shittim. 
The, the camp of, of a couple million uh, Jewish people are staying there and camped in Shittim while these two spies go into Jericho. Now remember, Joshua was one of the original 12 spies that Moses sent on the first recon mission that failed because 10 of the 12 spies came back and had this fearful report, spread fear throughout the whole camp. That's what led to the rebellion and why that generation never went into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who came back with a good report. Only two out of 12. I suspect that Joshua learned from that, don't you think? He's like, I'm not sending 12 because that didn't work out last time. You know, it's hard to get 12 people to agree. How about just two people? Maybe two people could agree on this. And so they're unnamed. The Bible doesn't say who these two spies were, but they leave the camp and they go into Jericho. Some uh, uh, scholars and Jewish tradition says that one of the spies may very well have been Caleb. Caleb was, only he and Joshua were, were part of that original generation who came into the promised land. And other um, Bible commentaries, other theologians suspect that the second spy may have been a guy by the name of Salmon. And Salmon will have a pivotal role in this story here as we get to the story of Rahab. But truth be told, we don't know. We don't know who. That's all speculation, who those two spies might have been. But they come here uh, on this mission to Jericho. They're going to spy out. This is, the, this is a fortified city. And um, in order to take the promised land, they're going to have to take Jericho. Now, Jericho, historically, is the oldest known city in the world. Now, the only slight exception is Damascus, Syria. Damascus is considered to be the oldest continually occupied city in the world. But in terms of its date, Jericho predates Damascus. It's the oldest city in the world known to man. It is mentioned more than 60 times throughout the Bible. The word Jericho in Hebrew is actually spelled with a Y. There's no J in the Hebrew alphabet. It is Yeriko. Yeriko translates fragrant because in this place was grown beautiful balsam and cypress trees and it was known for its spices and the fragrance that was associated with it. Also, they say that roses were grown there. So it was a very fragrant city, Yeriko. That's what it means, fragrant. And um, it was considered in the day impenetrable. Um, my first visit to Jericho was in the year 2000. Now, in 1994, there was an agreement between Israel and um, the Palestinians for Jericho, because it's located within what is called today the West Bank, for it to be absorbed under Palestinian authority. So in 1994, um, that transition was made. In fact, uh, a friend of mine, Amir Safadi, who has, who's been here, um, not in the new building, but in the old building, he, he was here to teach for me. Um, he was the um, assistant governor who was part of that transition in 1994 to bring Jericho under the Palestinian Authority. But my first visit there to Jericho was in 2000. Um, it, was, it was the first place that my wife rode a camel in her life. For me, it was the first place where um, I was offered, so in the marketplace there in Jericho, in the old part of the city, um, I was offered this thick black Arabic coffee that you could stand a spoon up in, right? It's like, it's like pudding. Um, and, uh, and then these, these Arab guys were like, you smoke hookah with us, smoke hookah, smoke hookah. 
you know, and and you know, the, and if you know anything about the hookah, it's you know, it's got this, you know, um, it, it uses a water filtration thing, and then there's this tobacco stuff on the top, and coals that that heat it up, and then there's this tube, this rubber tube with a mouthpiece. Okay, now I'm not a germaphobe; I'm just germaware. And so they're like, smoke hookah with us, smoke hookah with us. And I'm, and, you know, I'm looking at that, at that thing, and I'm, I'm thinking of a couple things, you know, like Instagram, probably not a good picture, right? But I'm also thinking, uh, you know, how many other Arab men have been smoking the end of this hookah pipe here? And so they keep saying to me, salam, salam, which means peace, you know, in Arabic, salam, salam. I kept saying saliva, saliva, you know what I mean? So, like, no thank you, no thank you. But, um... But otherwise, I mean, you know, Jericho is a, a wonderful place, and the, the Arab people there, the Palestinian people, are wonderful people in Jericho. But, but this is that ancient city, the oldest uh, place um, known to man on the planet. It is also called, a couple other places in the Bible, the City of Palms. Now, don't think um, palm tree like, you know, Miami. Think palm tree date palms. Uh, and, they're, and they're in the same family, but they just look a little different. They don't, these kind of palms don't have coconuts hanging from them. They have dates hanging from them. And so Jericho was also a place where these beautiful, and still to this day, these beautiful uh, palm trees, date palm trees, grow. And so this is that, that uh, Jericho. By the way, just another historical point. Herod the Great, you remember Herod the Great was the one who issued that order for all the baby boys to be killed in Bethlehem trying to kill the baby Jesus at the time. Herod the Great dies in Jericho. And so it says to us um, here that Joshua, again, verse 1, son of Nun, sent out two men to spy uh, from Acacia Grove, to spy secretly, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. So uh, they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told Uh, the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. And so the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out uh, all the country. All right, pause there for just a moment. We are introduced to uh, Rahab here, but uh, but before we talk about her, note, if you will, that she is, New King James says, a harlot. Uh, she is a prostitute. And so then the question often becomes, why would these two Israelite guys go to the house of a prostitute? I mean, they're supposed to be spying out the land, you know, and is this a detour? Or, you know, what's going on here? Is something shady going on? Like, well, you know, forget the spying out Jericho. Let's just go to the town hooker. I mean, what is happening here? Now, before I answer that, a little bit about Rahab. Uh, in Hebrew, her name is actually with a V instead of a B. It's Rehav. Rahav, no offense, but her name in Hebrew means wide or broad. Rehav. Now, you know, don't think slang, right? Because, you know, what a beautiful broad. It's not like that. Rehav, broad or wide, is in the sense of pride. Insolence, arrogance, that's what the word means. Wide in the sense of like, you know, puffed up, proud. That's what Rahav means. So I don't know why our parents would think, oh, what a, what a wonderful name. Let's just name our kid puffed up with pride. But that's basically what Rahav means, wide or broad in that sense of like proud and arrogant. And so we're introduced to her here. 
And um, she's going to play a pivotal role, not just in Joshua chapter 2, but in human history. She's going to play a role in the life of Jesus. For those of you who already know, um, you're already ahead of me, but, but I'll come to it in a moment when we talk about her uh, inclusion here. She's going to be uh, going to become a proselyte to Judaism, but she is, so that we understand clearly, she is a Canaanite, which is Gentile. She's not Jewish. She is um, a prostitute. So uh, this is already, in terms of modern, um, uh, in terms of this this time, this modern time that we're reading about the Bible, this is this is she's she's considered a complete outcast. She's she's. As a prostitute and a foreign, a Gentile, I mean, she's completely considered uh, unredeemable. And uh, as in terms of like, you know, the Jewish mindset. But there's a wonderful thing that happens here with her. And so uh, here she is running this uh, house of prostitution. And uh, these spies end up here. And somehow the king of Jericho finds out about it. I mean, you know, news travels fast, I suppose, when people are coming and going uh, through the house of Rahab here. And so the king of Jericho finds out about it. And he sends word. Now, it, it's, it's going to tell us later in the, in the chapter that her home is connected to the actual wall of the city, which was pretty common in the day where, where you would build the wall of a city and then the wall of the city would serve as an exterior wall of homes. And so homes would be built along the perimeter of the wall. And so you, your house would sometimes share uh, the, the, the wall of the city itself. And we find out that's the case here with Rahab. She even has a window out of the walled city uh, because it's part of her home. And so it's likely that the spies went here because not for not for any shady business but it's likely that they went here because back in the day look where where do you go for town information where if you're on a recon mission and you want to find out what is happening i mean this is like uh a tavern in the day um but don't don't believe you know some liberal theologian you could read some commentary saying well she wasn't really a prostitute she was just a you know an inn she ran an inn she was an innkeeper she's a prostitute the word harlot is used here and she's mentioned three times in the new testament and twice in the new testament out of the three times she's still designated as a harlot they want us to understand and look don't don't sugarcoat it because it makes the story of redemption even that much better. When you realize the life that she lived and yet God's redemption in her life, it makes an even more beautiful story here. So that's who she was. And these spies know that they can probably get some information because there are a lot of travelers who come in and out of that house. And so they go there. The king of Jericho finds out, sends messengers. Rahab. Get those guys out. Kick them out. Send them back. Well, it tells us in verse 4. And then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she doesn't get rid of them. And so she said to these people sent by the king, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Lie. We'll find out later. She knows. And it happened as the gate was being shut, she says, When it was dark that the men went out, lie. Where the men went, I do not know, lie. They're on your roof. 
Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them, it says in verse 6. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. And then the men pursued them by the road to the Jordan, to the fords. And as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, there's an ethical dilemma here, isn't there? Rahab is lying to these guys. Um, She's hidden them on her roof. Now, it tells us she hid them under stalks of flax. That also tells us what time of year it is. They would harvest flax, which is a grain. It's a gluten-free grain um, in the month of April. So this story is happening right around the same time of the year that we're living in right now. And flax were long stalks that were cut down, and then they were taken up typically to the roof of a home, and they were all laid out, and they were dried by the sun. And flax is still, you know, it's a valuable commodity even today. It's an important nutritional value. Uh, some of you all love flaxseed or, or flaxseed oil. They'll take the seeds of flax, and they will press it and get oil out of it. It's very healthy. It's high in omega-3. That's no extra charge. And, and I'm, I'm not selling anything. I'm just reporting the information. Um, and, um, and, and, but in this day, what it was typically used for, and still can be used today for this, they would take the flax, it would dry out in the sun, and then they would beat it, and they would make linen products out of it. You make linen out of flax. And so it was up there drying, and she hustles these two guys up to the roof of her house and hides them under the flax stalks. That's where she hides them. And then when she's confronted... She lies about their whereabouts, says, oh, no, 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 before the gate was shut, they left, and sends these guys who were sent on behalf of the king on a wild goose chase. Now, the ethical dilemma. She lies here. Uh, Don't read everything in your Bibles and think, oh, there's a principle here. No, this is not teaching us a principle. You know, the fact that the Bible is reporting this, it, it's, it describes what she did, but it, it, it doesn't prescribe what she did. It's just reporting that she lied. Let's remember, you know, she's not redeemed yet. She's a Gentile prostitute. She's probably lied a lot in her life. Oh, you're a real stud to all her customers. You know what I'm saying to you? <laughs> she's used to that. Some guy walks in, boy, you're a hunk of hunk of love, aren't you? And he looks like Danny DeVito. No, she's been, she's been lying all her life. So when the Bible's not condoning this. The Bible's not saying, hey, take a lesson out of the page of Joshua chapter 2. If it's convenient, just lie. Okay, it's the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false testimony. We're not supposed to lie. That said, and I'm going to be careful in how I try to say this, okay, There are some things in life that on the moral scale are weightier, all right? Now, just hear me out. Again, I'm not encouraging anybody to lie. The Bible doesn't condone lying. But there are some things on a moral scale that are weightier. For example, and it's just a random example. Um, Your husband's having a heart attack could die. You are driving in excess of the speed limit. His life is in danger. 
Do you really care that you're breaking the speed? I mean, you don't want to hurt anybody and you don't want to be reckless, but you're not really that concerned about obeying the law because at that moment, your husband's life is more valuable than, than driving, you know, 45 and a 45. You can go 55. You, I'm not encouraging. I'm just saying this is what anybody would do. You know, if my wife is in imminent danger and needs medical attention, and I'm at a place where I don't have time to call an ambulance, and she's in my car, I'm, I'm, the higher moral, the weightier moral moment is her life, not that I might get a ticket because I'm in excess of the speed limit. Uh, and these kind of things happen at times, where there's this conflict, and one has to decide where is the, what's the weightier moral implication here that needs greater attention and obedience, and thus you're not bound by the legalism of, of every law in the moment when there's a higher calling of a more important, weightier moral matter. Uh, th- this is the kind of thing that, that we have to decide from, from time to time. And so in this case, she has lied to protect lives. Um, you, you're going to have to sort this out yourself because this is, again, very you know, difficult. It's a fine line here. I'm trying to thread the needle carefully. And, and we shouldn't make excuses. But there are times when we are confronted in life with moral choices. And sometimes we opt for a weightier moral response because it, in, in that moment, it's, it's more necessary. In her lying, she saved these guys' lives. Their lives were more important in that hour than necessarily her words. So, again, you'll have to sort that out. Let me give you an example from real history. Uh, and many of you are familiar because I've quoted Corey Ten Boom multiple times over ministry because she's just a, a wonderful example of a godly woman. But the Ten Boom family, if you, if you know anything about the story, uh, and a whole movie and a book was written, The Hiding Place, the Ten Boom family in Amsterdam were hiding Jews in their home against the law to protect them from Nazi Germany. They were lying about it. And one can look and say, that's the ninth commandment. You're breaking, you're breaking the law of God. You're, you're lying. They were protecting lives. And, and now they got discovered for it, and they would suffer for it. Uh, I mean, you know, Corrie ten Boom would make it out eventually from the prison camp where she would be sent. Her sister Betsy would die there. Uh, her parents would also uh, die. But she would survive and eventually make it out. And as a living testimony, they were doing it because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They did it because as believers, they understood that the lives of those Jewish uh, uh, men and women that they were hiding in, in secret chambers of their home was more valuable than us telling the truth to Nazi Germany. So my point is that there are some times when there are weightier moral matters that have to be considered in the moment. So I'm not necessarily justifying what she did here, but on, on the other hand, she's a Gentile, she's not even a, a believer yet, and so non-believers do what non-believers do. But there are times that sometimes we will be confronted with a higher uh, moral um, conscience in different matters. By the way, on, on the topic of lying, however, you might be interested to know that according to a nationwide survey, 91% of Americans say they lie regularly. 91% say they lie regularly. You know what that means? It means 9% were lying. <laughs> That's what that means. Like, do you, do you lie regularly? Oh, no, 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 I don't lie. Yeah, that 9% said no. So they're lying too. 
on average, sorry guys, men tell six lies a day, while women average three lies a day. Yeah, you're looking at each other like, is that true? (laughs) So guys apparently lie twice as much as the women do. College students admitted to lying twice a day. Is that all? 83% of American teenagers admit that they have lied to their parents about something significant. 64% admit to cheating on a test. I don't know how you can even believe any statistics about lying. Don't people lie about that stuff? But it is what it is. And so she lies here. She sends these guys on a wild goose chase. She protects the lives of these Jewish spies. And then in verse 8, It says, now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, now listen to her story here. I know that the Lord, now notice in your Bibles, it's all capital letters, L-O-R-D. This is the proper name of God. This is Yahweh. She knows. She's a Gentile prostitute, and she knows. I know that the Lord, Yahweh, has given you the land that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. This is when they came out of uh, Egypt. Remember, the Lord dried up the Red Sea. We heard about that, she says. For you... We heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. Notice, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. How did she know that? I mean, there's no internet. There's no social media. How did she know this? Because the word of the reputation of God and God's people had spread far and wide, which is why they are without excuse. This answers the question some of you emailed, because I had said a couple weeks ago, God was patient for 400 years with the Canaanites living in the land and the Amorites and the Hittites, the people living within the promised land, who had paganized it in the absence of the Jewish people who were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They had left Israel, 70, only 70, Jacob and his, the 12 tribes, his 12 sons, because of a famine, they left. They were then enslaved by Pharaoh. So they spent the next 400 years there. And when they try to go back home, it's been completely paganized. But God waited 400 years for those pagan people to turn to him. And you say, well, was there a prophet? Was there somebody who informed them where it had already spread? They knew. They just didn't believe and respond to it, you see. So they're culpable. Rahab here says, we've heard this. We've heard of the miracles. We heard of the story. We know, and we know, she says here. And she makes this personal profession here. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Beneath. This is amazing to think that a Gentile would know the truth about God. But see, He has made Himself known. He has circulated the Word. So God could use people and today technology, but He is always faithful to make Himself known. 
And so that men are without excuse. You, you read in, in the book of Romans, first couple of chapters of the book of Romans, God says he testifies to us through conscience, through commandments, and through creation so that men are without excuse. We have a conscious awareness of God. Then he's revealed himself to us through the commandments, through scripture. And he's revealed himself to us through creation. Even though man has corrupted the creation story and tried to replace God with an evolutionary theory so that man is central to the story instead of God being central to the story, man's just inverted it and made man at the top instead of God at the top. And evolutionary theory is an attempt to really deny God because it's an attempt to not have to be accountable to God. If you have to acknowledge God, then you're accountable to God. If you think that God doesn't exist and we all just crawled out of a pond and eventually evolved and we're the center of the universe, then you're only accountable to yourself. So once you begin to realize creation speaks of a creator and you begin to see the handiwork of a divine designer behind it, it's that old story about a watchmaker, right? You can't look at a watch and say that just suddenly came together randomly on its own through long periods of successive years. No, there's a designer, there's a watchmaker behind that watch. And so it is when you look with inquisitive hearts and minds open to the truth and looking at the universe and the intricacies of the universe and the interdependency of the universe and the cosmos, it screams about not just intelligent design, it screams a divine designer and his name is Lord God Almighty. And thus... And thus man is without excuse because conscience, commandments, and creation testify to the existence of God. Rahab, she was informed by one of those different methods and means and God made himself known so that she can make this bold assertion about who God is. Now look at what she continues to say. Verse 12, now therefore I beg you, swear to me. By the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that's the Hebrew word chesed, chesed is mercy. That's what God shows us, right? She says, I have shown you kindness that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. She pleads with them. She says, I recognize your God is the true God of heaven and earth. Would you please show chesed, kindness, mercy to me as I'm showing mercy, kindness to you? And so the men answered her. Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, like don't, don't go around chatting about this. And it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. And so the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home, so shall it be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. 
and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. So here's what these guys say to her. They say, okay, You've shown us kindness, we're going to show you kindness. When we come back in a few days and we wage war against this city, your life and the life of your family members will be spared. So long as, a couple of things, all of you are in your home. If you go out the door, out the front door, we're not responsible. Blood's going to be on them. But we will take responsibility to protect you and the lives of all your family members if you stay within your home, because we're going to come back and get you. But you have to all be here in this home. And here's the second thing. You have to tie the scarlet cord around the window. And so the instruction is this red cord has to hang from your window. It's going to mark your house as the house that we're going to come back to. Now, why the scarlet cord? Perhaps they have in their minds when they left Egypt, the homes were marked with the blood of the Lamb. The red that marked the homes were the homes that were protected by God and lives were spared. Regardless of what they had in mind when they gave her this scarlet cord, tie it to your window to mark your home and your family. What it paints for us is a picture of Jesus. He is the scarlet cord. The red blood that Christ shed on the cross that marks us as belonging to him when we put our faith and trust in him is what will spare our lives. See, he died to rescue us. It's this beautiful picture here. And Rahab is the picture of every single one of us. Sinners saved by grace. People in need of God's love and redemption and forgiveness. This is Rahab. She's a picture of every single one of us. The scarlet cord is a picture of Jesus that separated her life and her family from everyone else that she and her household might be spared. And so verse 21, let's finish out the chapter. And then she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and see right away. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. She's not wasting any time. She's like, I'm not going to forget this or lose this. I'm tying it right now. And I love the way it simply says there, and then she said, according to your words, so be it. You know what she didn't do? She didn't debate them. Does it have to be a red cord? Can it be a blue cord? (laughs) How about yellow? You know, it's a little narrow-minded for me to do the red cord thing. I want to be more free and open to other thoughts and ideas. (laughs) You know why she didn't debate and argue about it? I'll tell you why. There's only two reasons that are necessary for you to come to believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, that you believe that God is God, and number two, that you see your desperate condition. That's all that was going on with Rahab. She believed that God was God of heaven and earth, and she saw her own desperate condition. And when you have those two things, if you have only one without the other, it won't be a connection. But when you have both of those things, God is God of heaven and earth, and I'm in desperate a desperate place. I need a savior. You won't argue and debate. You'll just be thankful that God made the way, which is the only way to be saved. And you will embrace it and you will receive Jesus and you won't try to debate and argue the whole thing because you believe that God is God and you understand your own sinful, desperate condition. That's what she had there. And that's why she was, 
She was quick to say, I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever. See, when, when people don't get to that place of surrender, to be honest with you, they're just not desperate enough. And sometimes it takes some stuff that God will allow to get you to that place of desperation. You can come easy or you can come hard, but you'll come one way or another. And it's a whole lot easier to come when things aren't so tough. Surrender can be hard. It can be difficult. And God loves us so much, he'll keep putting on the squeeze until we come to that place where we see our own desperation. And it says in verse 22 that they departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all along the way but did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over, and they came to Joshua the son of Nun and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. We'll pick it up there next week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the scarlet cord. And that by your sacrifice, you saved us. We were just like Rahab, just sinners, far from you, distant. And yet, you made a plan to redeem her. Just like you made a plan to redeem us through the sacrifice of Jesus. Through his scarlet blood that was shed on the cross through faith in what Jesus did, we can have our sins forgiven. We can be rescued from death and given life. We're grateful, Lord, for the cross. We're thankful that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die. Forgive us when we try to analyze and intellectualize everything instead of just humbling ourselves being thankful for the way that you made possible for us to be saved. Lord, I pray tonight for those who are here or listening online who don't know you in a personal way. Maybe some of them have felt like Rahab, that maybe they've just done too many shameful things. How is it possible that you would love them and receive them? But yet you do, every single one of us. You died on a cross for every single one of us, for every sinful, shameful thing we've ever done or said or thought. There's no one outside of your redemptive love. So even for that one tonight who just needs to know how much you love them, that you died for them, that you shed your blood for them, I pray you would open the eyes of their heart to receive you to just humble themselves and to just pray a prayer like this, just to say, Jesus, I thank you that you died on a cross for me, that you made a way possible for me to be saved, to be forgiven. Come into my heart, Lord. Take over my life. Forgive me of my sins and save me in your name. Lord, that's how simple it is. You call us to come to receive you by faith, and we thank you that you are our scarlet cord. We praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. God bless you all.